You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 143. What's going on, Mark? What's going on, Jake, is we have a guest, which we never have, one of our future podcast hosts or co-hosts, Colin. <laughs> What's going on, guys? I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> It's the no, most it's polarizing figure in oil and gas himself. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely is the most polarizing figure in oil and gas. If our audience <laughs> doesn't know who that is, just go check him out on LinkedIn or on Instagram or any of the other socials. And then before we get into anything else, if you want to support the show, it's ridiculously easy. All you have to do is leave us a review. Be like Brian Schultz. He left us this really cool review. I find this podcast extremely informative. This is the best way to keep up to date on issues impacting the industry. Thank you so much. Then we have another one, right? Hi, Mark and Jake. Great podcast. As a petroleum geoscience grad student about to enter the oil and gas industry, this podcast has kept me informed of what's going on in the business around the world in such a concise way. Thanks for making them. So to both of y'all, you're welcome. If you would like a shout out on the show, leave us a review. It takes a couple of minutes. And Jake, I don't know about you and I in petroleum geoscience. That's getting kind of deep. That's, that's getting pretty niche. Luckily, we know people. And before we go even even further, if people are wondering why Jake and I haven't uh, released an episode lately, Jake, you have a new addition to your family, don't you? I sure do. Little Zane Westbrook Corley was born uh, on the 7th at 12.29 a.m., and he came in at a whopping 12 pounds, (laughs) uh, 22 and a half inches long. That's that's J.J. Watt Jr. Yeah, J.J. Watt Jr., so we're signing him up. (laughs) So we're, uh, we're really excited. We're very tired. But we, we couldn't be happier with him. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations on the, on the new baby. Um, Jake's being a trooper right now. Let's go ahead and get into the questions. You want to let Colin read the first one? Yeah. Go for it, Colin. All right. First question is from AJ. AJ says, good day. I have just discovered your podcast and is really impressed with the amount of valuable information you've provided in regards to the listeners' inquiries. His first question is, are there any public bidding informational sources that pertain to oil and gas projects? So I don't know of any like one-stop shop where you can where you can see all the oil and gas projects in public. I'm taking that he's asking if there's anything free. Uh, each state will have some type of online presence in some degree of maturity that's tracking some of the either leases or maybe even the projects. But that's going to be state by state. The only other place I can think of that has that information is a company like somebody like Industrial Info Resources, IIR. Uh, they track oil and gas projects all over the world, all kinds of infrastructure projects. But it's not free. You have to pay for it. I don't know about you, Jake or Colin. Do you all know any places where you can go and get that info? So you can get the information from there or from uh, Project Insiders, but that just gives you information about the projects. It kind of just helps with the prospecting for anybody in sales looking to kind of get on an approved vendor list. But we've seen a lot of startups try to pop up in the space, even as early as like 2000, 2002, trying to come in and be like a, you know, like an Amazon of oil and gas or, you know, putting all of the, the bidding into some kind of online platform. And time and time again, I think we talked about this like two or three episodes ago. They've all failed. None of none of them have uh, industry adoption, regardless of whichever way we spin it. Rig up, you know, is is uh, a startup that's doing very well in this space. That's what they started off doing. They had more traction than anybody's seen, but they they've made a major pivot. And it's my understanding they're more so on the consultant, the hiring of consultant side, whatever you want to call that, and have kind of pivoted away from their their core model. So I don't think there are any public bidding uh, platforms or sources. 
you know, but uh, the, the traditional process is, you know, you, you, if you're working with some of these larger companies, you have to become a approved vendor. Uh, and then if, if they need something, they send out a, an RFP, RFQ, and then you, you bid the traditional way. And it's, it's antiquated and it's outdated. It's slow. It's painful. But unfortunately, that's still the way that business is done. Yeah. And then the last part of this question is once there's a bid winner, what are some of the ways of announcing it to contractors, the opportunities for proposals? So here in the U.S. and in a lot of ways in Canada, really, if you want to get plugged in that world, one of the best ways to do is form a good relationship with one of the big EPCs, Engineers Procurement Construction Companies. Think of like Floor or McDermott. And if you're on their approved vendors list, then what they do is they sub a lot of that work out to you. They're the ones that get pings by the Exxon and the Chevrons of the world to build these big projects or to bid on them. You're not get pinged if you're a small contractor to be bid on one of those projects. But if you get form a good, strong relationship with one of the big EPC companies out there, then they will reach out to you and have you bid on that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think we're seeing some things in the tech space too on uh, the upstream sector. You know, we have uh, one of our friends owns a tech startup called Petro Bids, and this is where contractors and operators can come together to meet, and service contractors can put in bids on projects that the operator might have. So we're starting to see some tech in that space to connect both of those sides. But you know, if if you're a contractor, I think a lot of it comes down to networking. If anybody's buying assets, developing projects, typically they're going to have service contractors that they've already formed relationships with. All right. So good question. What's next? We got a question from Adam from Arsenal Resources. He's an exploration geologist. He writes, Oil and Gas Weekly podcast team. I have two questions regarding significantly different topics. So we'll just break this down for the first one, answer it, then we'll go to the second one. Uh, with proposed steel tariffs poised to impact the bottom line of upstream and midstream, are there high-grade plastics, cavillars, or alternative materials that can be utilized for pipeline facilities or downhole tubing that are safe and cost-effective? Yeah, so before I answer that, we actually went out and did a little bit of research because we had this question came up a while back, or we talked about it a while back. And last year, so for 2017, if, if we took an average of about 11,000 uh, oil and gas wells in Texas, and they spend about eight and a half billion dollars on pipe. Those same exact wells, if the tariff goes through and the math stays the same as the, pro the proposed math, that's going to go to about 11 billion. So that's a pretty significant increase in, in price. The problem with that, though, is that that's still cheaper than things like composite, which is what Kevlar is. So, and, and there are there are plastics that are used in the industry. The problem with plastics, of course, is that they don't have the abrasion resistance that steel does. And a lot of people don't know this. When you drill for either oil or gas, what comes out of the hole is everything in the world, right? Oil, gas, mud, sand, water, salt. And so you have to have not just the ability to maintain that control of the pressure, but also the the ability to keep abrasion from wearing down the, the inner wall of the pipe. And steel is just a great fit for that. I do think this will drive some uh, different types of, of piping being tried out. The other thing I'm going to think it's, it's going to do, and nobody's talking about this, is the U.S. used to make the highest quality steel on the planet, bar none. And the Chinese got in the steel market about 10 years ago, and they flooded the world with cheap steel. They also have the ability to make good steel. They tend not to do it all the time. They tend to do just the bare bones minimum, but they put a lot of the U.S. steel manufacturers out of business. I think if this tariff goes in, you're going to see it be economically viable for companies to stand up steel manufacturing, specifically for oil and gas, so that they don't pay the tariffs. Now, all of a sudden, they're price competitive with the Chinese. 
And and some of the stuff in our industry, like some of these high pressure, high temperature wells in the subsea world, you know, the Camerons and the Ackers and the FMCs of the world, there's only one or two companies companies in the world that can make that the exact tubing they need. In fact, there's a company in Italy that has like a, a the lion's share of that market. Well, I think if we actually, if these tariffs actually go through, you're going to see U.S. companies now start getting that very specialized oil and gas tubing manufacturing. And once again, it'll be price competitive because they're not having to pay a tariff rate. So kind of it's, it's going to hurt our industry in the short one. But when I think about it as an American longer term wise, how cool would it be to have our steel industry come back? Yeah, that'd be awesome. And I think we're yeah. seeing some new technology come out too. For ex- uh, example, out in our wells in Oklahoma, we've been talking to a company, they're named Western Falcon, and they have a proprietary liner that goes on the idea of your tubing. And that, that liner is made out of, it's a proprietary makeup. So I don't know exactly what it's made out of, but it prevents rod wear corrosion on the tubing. And we're looking at these as long-term solutions because, you know, you have that, that 25% premium on tubing. You don't want to re- be replacing tubing strings all the time that are getting holes due to rod wear. So we're looking to take some proactive steps in maintaining our steel downhole over the long term. All right. So the second part of the question is, uh, with increased scrutiny of flaring secondary gas in the Permian, how do you see companies in the basin evolving to deal with the higher than expected gas cuts from oil wells? Natural gas, EOR, like EOG and the Eagleford, uh, virtual pipeline and pipeline infrastructure, electric generation, natural gas to liquids facilities, et cetera. Yeah. So for the short term, I think you can see electrical gen sets run off well gas, which is going to eat up some of that extra gas that they're, that they're having to deal with. The problem is it's, it's very inefficient to run a rig on a gen set. It has to do something with the phase of electricity it comes off. It's actually more efficient to run the uh, top drive and everything else on the, on the drilling rig from, from factory power. And so you're seeing a lot of infrastructure all in all the shell basins of, of the utility providers putting in factory power or utility power because it's more efficient for the operators. I think eventually what's going to happen, you see a maturity of the infrastructure. You know, we're just in the you know, first inning of the baseball game as far as infrastructure maturity in, in all of the shale basins. You know, right now we have the ability to move the hydrocarbons out mostly via pipeline. We're getting to the place now where we can move both fresh water and produce water more or less with pipelines. We're just very starting the very beginning of being able to bring that water to recycling facilities via pipeline and bring it back to the well site. Somewhere in the future, in the next 10 years, as that infrastructure matures, you're going to see infrastructure built to catch this secondary type gas and basically bring it to market. It tends to have a, um, um, high hydrogen sulfide levels in it, so it has to be treated. But once you pull the hydrogen sulfide out, you can sell it in the market just like anything else. And I think that's going to coincide at the same time that gas is going to creep up to around you know, $3.50 or $4 per billion cubic foot. So I think eventually it'll just be put back in the system. Cool. Next question is uh, from somebody named Raylan. He writes, uh, Southwest Energy announced the potential sale of their Fayetteville shale assets earlier this year. With declining natural gas prices, who would be interested in the Fayetteville shale? Uh, what's the future hold for Fayetteville and other dry gas plays? So there's, I have two answers to this. So the first thing, this is nothing more than Southwest and Energy cleanups portfolio, taking this assets, putting it on the market, generating capital with it, and use that to invest in stuff that their their core competency is very good around. That's part of it. But the other thing is is that whole Fayetteville uh, shale area is is large scale, capital intensive projects. But it also has a low decline rate to compare to the other shell plays in the U.S. And so you can generate cash flow there, but it's it's bigger capex investment up front, and you have to have a little bit more infrastructure so that you can have that longer term production brought 
back to the market. So like Jake and I have talked about before, this is just, you know, it's 2018, it's May. Right now, Southwest Energy says that they want to get rid of these Fayetteville Shell assets. It makes sense. That doesn't mean Fayetteville is going away, right? It just means you have to find another company at another point in history where it makes sense in, to invest in it. That dry gas is actually very attractive once the gas gets up about another 50 cents per billion cubic foot because it's really easy to bring to the market. Yeah, and that's the thing with all these EMPs, you know, what may make sense for one company to hold an asset, it may not make sense for another company to continue operating it. So it's really a case by case basis. And, you know, a good time to purchase assets is when natural gas prices are declining and you think that you can still manage it, operate it and make profit as prices continue to decline. And then when prices come back up, you can flip that asset. So it's really just a case by case basis depends on the portfolio of the company that's buying and the company that's selling. Yeah, agreed 100%. Yeah. And if our audience doesn't know this, Jake and Colin, y'all know what y'all talking about, don't you? Y'all are now an operator. I, I just like, I like <laughs> to pretend I know what I'm talking about. Sounds good, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, y'all have operating wells now, so I hope y'all know what y'all are talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got, got wells up in Oklahoma, and, it, you know, even that uh, that acquisition was one of those scenarios where it didn't make sense for the seller to hold it in their portfolio, and it made a lot of sense for us to acquire it. So like I said, just case by case depends a lot on company size, where your, your core strategy lies. You know, if we had assets out in the Permian and we weren't really heavy in the Permian, it would probably make sense for a a bigger Permian player to come up and acquire them. All right. Good stuff. Next question. And these $72 oil prices are looking real good. (laughs) Yeah. All right, up next, we have a question from uh, Brian Balance. He's the Director of Op- Optimization at Target Resources. He writes, do you all have any concrete examples slash case studies of a turnaround in safety performance and cultural by changing management in the safety department? Mark, this is probably your uh, your department. Yeah, so Brian, I don't know if you know this, we have another show just around HS&E. It's literally called the Oil and Gas HS&E Podcast. You might want to go listen to that one. Do I have a concrete example? Heck yeah, and and, and this thing is incredible. So we were very lucky, this was last year, and we had a chance to interview for the HSE podcast, Jack Hinton, who's the head of HSE for Baker Hughes, now Baker Hughes GE. Jack was very transparent, and I cannot believe he said this, but Baker Hughes' safety record was so bad about 10 years ago that several of the majors had an issue with working with them. And that's not a good place to be with if you're a service company when the majors don't want to work with you because your safety record. So Jack and his team put together a turnaround plan and they have something they call the perfect HS day, which I love the idea. That's a day where in all of Baker Hughes operations all over the world in that 24 hour period, nobody gets hurt. There's no damage to the environment. There's no reportable incidents. So when, when Jack decided to turn this around and he got the executives at Baker to buy into it, they told him he was crazy, that there's no way you could have even one perfect hs day, right? As big as they are, as global as they are, somebody's going to get cut somewhere, somebody's going to pinch a finger. It's impossible. And Jack said, that's the reason we have the issue, because you think it's impossible. You have to believe in your heart, and you have to know that it is possible to have a zero-incident workplace. And so he changed things around, and this is what I think is so cool. So they went from zero HS&E, H, perfect hs days 10 years ago. This past year, 2017, they had 208 days, perfect hs days. They almost made the whole year without a single person having an incident. 
I mean, that is, that's an incredible story. So Brian, back to, you know, do I have any concrete examples? Heck yeah. And <laughs> I just gave it to you. I, I would be willing to bet that if you go to the bakerhughes.com or maybe it's bakerhughesge.com, whatever it is now, and do a little bit of searching, you can find this story because it is a remarkable story. And all it took was the right person to be in the right place to get the executive team to change the way they believed about HSE. And then the rest just fell into place. So I, I think it's a beautiful story. Colin, you want to take the next one? Yeah, sure. Next question is from Nathan. Nathan asks, I'm a petroleum engineering major at A&M and will be having my second internship this summer in New Mexico, focusing on the Delaware Basin. For all the youngins listening as well, would y'all mind offering some advice to have a successful internship and land a return offer? I like the fact he called himself a young one. Youngin. Yeah, youngin. I like Youngins, that. actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll jump in real quick. Nathan, really, the way to get a, a good internship or, or a paying internship and have that turn into an offer starts way before it's time for you to get out of school. You need some work experience. I know you have an education, but so do 500 other people that are fighting for that internship. If you have any real work experience, even if it was done for free, if you did volunteer work for nonprofit, that puts you ahead of, of a lot of your competition for that internship spot. And then you need to start forming the relationships with the companies that do the internships. It does not mean that because you know the right VP that you could get an internship. That's, that's gone here in the U.S. What it does mean is the people know and support you and help connect you internally with the people and the process and the systems they use to bring interns on board. And then once you land the internship, do your job, do it well, and then ask for more. Be that guy. Be the guy that's always looking to do more. Be that guy that goes wide in organization, right? You don't just know your coworkers. You know people on the other side of the office building, maybe on the other side of the world. And if you build that type of internal network and, and you're seen as the go-getter, I promise you, you'll make an they'll give you an offer before they give anybody else an offer. Jake Collins. Yeah, if I can add two things. One thing that I really look for in people is resourcefulness. I like people that are resourceful. I like people that go out and find answers to questions without having their hand held. So I think if you can prove that to people, you know, if you're if you're designated a task while you're doing this internship and you can go out, get the job done yourself without asking a, a ton of questions and just kind of digging around and finding the answers for yourself. I think that goes a long way. When companies are looking to hire, they're looking for people that are self-motivated, self-learners that can get the job done. Because if you're hiring an employee that you have to hold their hand through everything, you're not really outsourcing any of that workload off. So I think that's something that's really big. And then also kind of to veer off a little bit, I think one of the biggest things that anybody can do is to network before you're actually looking for a job. So start building out your network before you even graduate and, you know, start, start reaching out to engineers, especially graduates from A&M and see if you can get the opportunity to take them out to lunch, uh, take them for a coffee and really start building these deep relationships. And that when the time comes for you to graduate and actually have a job, you'll have this network built out that you can rely on to help place you at a company. Yeah, yeah stuff. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I think those are the two most important things. So resourcefulness and networking couldn't agree more. Uh, next question is from, uh, I'm going to butcher the name. I think it's Adiola. He writes, hello, Mark and Jake. I'm a first time listener to your recent podcast where you do a Q and a session. I loved it. Would like to seek advice from two veterans of podcasts on how to go about starting my own podcast. Passionate about the environment in particular water resources. And would like to start a podcast on this industry with influences from engineering, my degrees in water and environmental engineering. How do I go about setting this up? Thanks. So to make it easier for everybody, I actually had reached out to her, set up a phone call and talked her through at a high level what needs to be done. So she was very appreciative of that. Everything from gear to process to, uh, you know, how do you figure out 
you know, where you host, all that sort of stuff. So we're not gonna get to that on this show, but I will say this, if you're out there and you have an interest in doing a podcast that touches oil and gas, reach out to me. Uh, if it makes sense, maybe you can be part of our network. We're, we're, we're not selfish. You're all family out there. If, if you want to do an oil and gas podcast, you're part of the family and we'd love to have you on the network. If it makes sense, I actually made that offer to Adola and we're waiting to hear back, see if she wants to do that. So yeah, good stuff. And, and please don't call me to ask you how to set up a podcast. There's a bunch of good free resources out there. But if you're interested in a podcast that touches oil and gas, let me know. Yeah. And there's actually, I mean, with today's tech, there, there's an app called Anchor where you can literally record your podcast with your phone and then it'll push it out to all the all the mediums such as iTunes, Spotify, etc. So it's never been easier to start a podcast if you want to. The only two cents I'll add there, and it may have changed, I don't know, but Anchor used to keep control of your RSS feed. So if you ever decide to come off the platform of Anchor, you basically would have to resubmit a new podcast to Apple, which is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Hopefully they'll work on changing that, but I actually have an anchor account. I haven't used it yet, but I think the idea is awesome. That you can actually do it from your phone. Yeah, That's definitely a uh, drawback to it, but in just terms of getting launched and getting started quickly to test it out and see if it's something that's right for you. I, I think it could be a good option. I think so too, actually. I haven't played with it yet, but I have an account, so we'll see. <laughs> uh, what's <laughs> all right. Up any, next. Any... Hi, Mark and Jake. First off, great show. Started listening over a while ago while at Montana Tech. It made it easier being connected to the industry while in uh, such a non-industry area. But great for outdoors and scenery. Horrible for hands on oil and gas. Now living in Houston, I have a new perspective of your show with it being in the heart of it all. It makes me fall in love with the industry all over again. So thank you. I'm on what we call the WAVE Committee. Uh, it's a program here at Noble Energy for young professionals with the goal of connecting them to the industry, the company, and each other. We have a conference coming up this summer, July 2018, that gets put on annually. And for guest speakers, I want to reach out and ask you for the possibility would have having you guys come and talk at the conference. Feel free to reach out and coordinate, so on and so forth. I'm sure you reached out, Mark. Yeah. So I've already reached out to Kirby. We have a second meeting set up for next week. Um, this looks like a good, a good group. I left you out of the conversation, Jake, because you have a new baby and I can handle it. <laughs> on my own. But yeah, if you want Jake and I to come speak like Noble wants us, reach out to me in a month or two. You can also reach out to me and Jake and let's just start the conversation. If we can make it work, we'll, we'll, we'll be happy to do so. We love coming to speak to young people out there and you know, just be happy to share the details. So just give me a shout if you want us to come speak at your event. This looks cool, Jake, because we don't have to go anywhere. It's here in Houston. <laughs> Is that at their office? Yeah, it's literally at their office, yeah. Okay. That's like literally about two minutes from my house, so that's perfect. Yeah, it won't, it can't, that will never happen again. We do this one time, we'll never <laughs> have one two minutes from your house again. <laughs> All right, Colin, you want to take the last one? Yeah, last question is from James. James says, really love the show, gents. I've heard you both talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency on the show before. Can you do a deeper dive into what both of these are and also how they may be used in the accounting part of our industry? Many thanks. You want to take that, Jake? This is y'all's. This is both of y'all's, not me. <laughs> it's it's a very big question, so I want to see I want to see how Jake uh, wants to dive into it. I, I can get some input, of course. Crypto. How about I do some blockchain? Okay, go so ahead. How Mark. about I jump? No, so y'all correct me if I'm wrong. Blockchain, if you think about it, is nothing more than having something similar to a ledger that that nobody can erase, and so yep. every time an action is taken, it creates an uh, audit trail. Uh, it takes the data around that transaction and that's a block. And so every time a, a transaction is repeated, it also captures that information. That's another block. That's where the name blockchain came from. Is that close? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, pretty close. I Very mean, close. You'll, you'll uh, hear a term thrown around a lot, you know, immutable ledger, which means every transaction goes on a ledger, can't be reversed. 
the way that blockchain technology operates in a traditional sense is that you have a mining network. So you'll have a network of, say, you know, thousands of computers that are mining and verifying transactions. And once they verify transactions, it gets imprinted on the blockchain. So I think one big thing that uh, the general public hasn't been able to do yet is separate the idea of blockchain from cryptocurrency. Usually they're used interchangeably and the blockchain technology is the underlying tech of cryptocurrency. And I think one big way that we'll see this used in oil and gas as far as the finance side is actually, I think I saw on Twitter the other day that BP is actually looking at doing this internally already is that you could use, essentially you could create your own, your own blockchain internally to transfer payments. So for example, there's a very popular cryptocurrency called Litecoin. The other day, someone transferred $99 million worth of Litecoin in two and a half minutes with a 40 cent transaction fee. And that kind of gives you an idea of what type of liquidity that you have with cryptocurrency and how seamlessly transactions can go on the blockchain. So I think that you'll see within the oil and gas industry, we'll see blockchain be implemented in that to move capital around. Yeah, exactly. And on the cryptocurrency side, it really kind of comes down to obviously the first thing that everybody thinks about is just like Bitcoin. So that they assume that, you know, whenever you go to a coin market cap or something and you see thousands of coins and tokens, they think that it's all currencies, which is not necessarily true. There's a few that were built specifically to be currencies, but you also have a lot that are considered tokens. And tokens is really the new age version of shares in a company. That's Pretty much the the general. I mean, we could dive into that. We could spend all day yeah. talking about this. I don't really know one, how deep we should dive into this. One thing, you know, I'm I'm very passionate about this. So, like you said, I could talk about this for hours. But I think, you know, outside of finance, one area that we're really going to see some short term success with blockchain is in the land and title arena. Anything that involves contracts can be put on the blockchain and utilize smart contracts. So I think when we're looking at the legal side of upstream in the land and title, I think that we're going to see some big changes in the near future utilizing blockchain. Yeah, and I tell you this much, just from a corporate point of view, I know both Shell and BP have invested money and time in bringing this into their business. Those two companies don't adapt stuff for their business unless it's going to be really useful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so believe, I, believe, you, I believe Exxon yeah. has as well. Yeah, so so it's definitely it's coming in. And it's a good thing, right? If you look at what it can do, it actually can remove a lot of the – either accidental or intentional fraud that goes on in our industry in all different places. And that, uh, it's a cool thing. It'll bring a lot of transparency. All right, so, yep. so that was our questions for the week. If you'd like to ask us a question, it's very simple. Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on ask a question. If we read your question on the air, you will get a big shout out like all of our question askers did on this show. And then we have Colin on the show. You're going to hear more from Colin and more from Jake. Don't want to announce yet what's coming, but it's really freaking cool. And so just hold tight and you'll hear more coming from them soon. Speaking of soon, if you'd like to rent a Red Wing offshore bag, which has become this cult item, it's very simple. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You simply go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there. We give away one lucky winner a week. What's the rig count doing, gents? 1,094 rigs. So up a little bit. It's not bad. Anything over a grand is a good number. And then we're to our events on deck. If you managed to make it to one of our last two happy hours, thank you. It was great to see you. If you haven't, you missed out on the Oil and Gas Networking event of the century is what I've been told. <laughs> so we're going to do it again. We're doing it May 30, 31st. Uh, we're doing it in Colin and Jake's office building, which is actually called WeWorks. Free booze. You'll have a whole bunch of your peers there. It's a great time. I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, sign up quickly. This one's going to sell out. Yeah, free beer and pizza. You can't beat that. 
And I think it's actually on the May 29th. Yeah, May 29th. Yeah, it's May 29th. First. And we have another event also. This is not our event. This is another event that's coming up that Colin and I are both going to be at, which is the fourth annual data-driven drilling and production conference here in Houston at the Hilton Post Oak. So they've got like 500 attendees, 200 confirmed operators from 65 different companies, a bunch of super majors. Well, there's only like six, but a bunch of speakers, exhibitors, a lot of workshops. It's a two-day event and pretty much everybody's going to be there. So if nothing else, just come out, meet me and Colin. We'd love to meet you guys. Uh, I think it'll be a good event. We have a discount code for that. Uh, the code is just OGGN. Uh, you can get $300 off of registration. So we'll put a link in the show notes. You guys can check that out as well. That's awesome. And I may actually head out there too. We went to the show last year. It was pretty cool. It's really cool to see the way people are taking data and analytics and applying it to actual drilling and production. And, and, and nobody's figured it out completely yet, but there's a bunch of bright, smart people out there working on it. And it's just it's something really cool. And we talked about the happy hour. We actually, and I don't know the numbers, y'all may know the numbers, but we're we're booked with sponsors for the happy hour for most of this year. So it's going, it's going quick. If you'd like to get your company in front of our, our audience and you'd like to be a sponsor for the happy hour, it's dirt cheap. I think it's $450. Reach out to Julie, put a link in the show notes. Now, it may be that it won't happen for you till 2019 because it's filling up. So if you <laughs> want to do this, you better do it quickly. <laughs> and then... If you do go to the website to ask a question, go ahead and throw your email address in there. We promise not to spam you. This way, when we need to reach out to you as a group, we can, and you can find out what's going on first. If you want to find out what's going on second, go to the LinkedIn group, Only Guys Global Network on LinkedIn. That's where, uh, that's the family for this podcast and all the rest of the podcast. Uh, we're actually running over time. So Colin, man, it was great having you on the show this week. Looking forward to doing more work with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, and, and Jake, go, you need to go relieve your wife and, and let her get some sleep. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Poor girl. Yep. So folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.